Welcome, listen to the Fixoplasm podcast, and this episode I have um, a special guest, which doesn't happen often, uh, but uh, I'm delighted to invite the author and uh, and fellow role player, uh, Francis Harding. Hello, Francis. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for being on here. This podcast is about fiction and the fiction that influences role playing as well. And I think that you're pretty well qualified to talk about both. But also, um, it's coming up to Halloween, and I know that you are partial to uh, one or two ghost stories. I wanted to start off with by introducing listener to your um, uh, the body of your work, what what you did, what you've done in your early days. But also, maybe we should start with some some more of your recent work because that's the stuff that's got media attention. Uh, in particular, do you want to talk about the lie tree? Uh, yes. Now, The Light Tree was actually my seventh book. Um, so while, while I'd, I'd, I'd had another six books published before that and got some shortlisting, a certain amount of, uh, a certain amount of tension, it was The Light Tree that unexpectedly won, won the Cost of Book of the Year award, or certainly unexpectedly as far as I was concerned, at which point I started getting a lot more attention, really quite suddenly. So in, in many respects, I, I'm quite glad that it was actually my, my seventh book that got this attention since I think it had been my first, that would have been quite disorienting and destabilizing. As, as it was, there, it, there was definitely an, an enjoyable roller coaster feel to the, to the whole thing, a sense of um, moving very fast and not knowing quite which way was up. Yeah, I, I guess then you, you have um, a lot more confidence in, in you know, this part of your career now. So you're, you're used to the, the, the business and the media around it. Um, I, I can totally get that. Um, what, what's the, so could you summarise the lie tree for us? Uh, well, my one line summary is it's sort of a Victorian fantasy, gothic murder mystery, historical novel with more paleontology, blasting powder and a tree that eats lies. Very good. OK. Uh, to give a slightly more <laughs> <laughs> informative description. There is a, a young girl, a 14 year old girl, who is the daughter of a famed natural scientist. Uh, and she has aspirations in that direction herself, but is massively underestimated by everyone, including her family, because it's the Victorian period and she's a girl. But one day she and her entire family move to this, this little village called, so this little island called Vane. And Vane's quite remote. It's, it's got quite an insular community. They don't, they don't really like outsiders. And officially the family are there because there's, there's an archeological dig and her, her father is there to, to comment on some of the fossils that, that people have been finding. And she gradually gets the impression that her father is hiding something, perhaps something to do with the, the plant that he won't let his family or anybody else go near, but he's hiding out in, in a folly not far from the house. And she's starting to learn more about this at the point where her father was murdered, at which point she finds herself looking through his notes and discovering that as far as he's concerned, this plant was a lie tree. It was a bizarre plant that you could feed lies by, by whispering a lie to it. And then if you get as many other people as possible to believe this lie, the lie, uh, lie tree would bear a fruit. And then you could eat this fruit in order to learn an important secret. Well, obviously, at this point, there is a secret that this young girl, Faith, would very much like to learn, namely, who murdered her father. But all she'd have to do in order to use the tree for this is perhaps to tell it a few lies. 
and then spread them in this rather unfriendly community of islanders whom she doesn't like very much. Now, after all, there's no chance that some of these lives would get terribly out of control or that there might be a murderer looking for her or that the lie tree itself might be a little bit more sinister than it looks. Brilliant. So this is your seventh book. Um, and your early work, uh, if I'm right, it's the first one was Fly By Night, then Verdigree Deep. Was it, was it then Goldstruck Island after that one? I can't remember. Was that the third one? Yes, that's right. Uh, and then the, um, the sequel to Fly By Night, was that yes. the fourth one? And then A Face Like Glass? Yes. Uh, and Cuckoo Song. Correct. Right. Oh, I've got, have I, have I like got all, all in the right order? Absolutely. Oh, there, yes. there we go. Excellent. Um, so you described a very specific character and, you know, knowing I can say it sort of, it, it is, uh, it resonates strongly with some of the other characters I know that you've written. How do you feel that um, your development of characters and situations and the genre itself has um what are the consistent things that you've had throughout your all your all of your your works and also how do you feel that they've developed uh, and and into the things that interest you most and, and excite you most absolutely i i do have certain tendencies uh, i am always particularly interested in characters who are some way overlooked or underestimated who are a few feet to the left of the spotlight. I'm also very interested in times of change. Uh, I've, I've written three uh, historical novels, or historical fantasy, and all of them are set through times of um, disruptive and sometimes traumatic change. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's intellectual, um, intellectual change. I mean, in the light tree, um, Darwin's on, on, on the origin of species, and all, all the other scientific findings of that era are sending massive ripples through society. Um, I've got one set in 1923 where the, the aftermath of the, uh, of the First World War has transformed the country. And uh, A Skinful of Shadows is set during the English Civil War where pretty much everything is up in the air to the point where some people think it's biblical end times. Um, as I say, positions of transition, revolution and aftermath where characters have to either sink or swim. They have to find ways of adapt or die. And I'm interested in which people can do that, which people can't. Those are recurrent in my books. And I, I do have um, I do have other little mo motifs that crop up and so forth. But I also feel a strong drive to write something different each time. And, I, and I'm aware that there's a, a little bit of a tug war here because People want to have ways in which they can classify an author. And I want to have ways in which I cannot be classified. So whenever somebody tells me what sort of book I write or, or what the trajectory of my writing career has been, I feel an overwhelming urge to do something different just to break their classification system. Well, quite right. Would you generally describe yourself as a, a fantasy author, um, albeit mostly primary world fantasy rather than secondary world? Is that, is that fair? Yes, um, uh, pretty much everything I've written is fantasy. I mean, there's a scattering of short stories that aren't, but uh, now all, all my published novels have been fantasy. It's just that um, quite, a number of them tend to be quite a few other things as well. Uh, I, I'm afraid I, I have a hearty disrespect for genre boundaries. I mean, for example, Fly By Night 
is sort of historical fantasy, comedy, picaresque, spy thriller, murder, mystery, adventure story with a homicidal goose. Yeah, I mean, my view on genre is that it's not there to put barriers between uh, between different categories. It's more to uh, it's more to to deliberately blur the lines and also help people identify what they would like and and broaden out their reading. Um, but yeah, I, I I can imagine it would be uh, well. No one wants to be pigeonholed, eh? Uh, that's fair enough. Um, no, I'm I'm totally happy just to write my story, and then other people can tell me what it was. Yeah. One of the uh, um, one of the things you just said about the library is, is you've pretty much described one of my favourite role playing environments, which is an island. There's, there's a lot of things that I love about islands, which and as you said, a small insular community with a limited number of people. I think not only is that often a lot of fun to read, um, it's also a very fertile territory for role playing. I mean, do do you? Um, how many of those fit that template though the sort of isolated self-contained community is it is that something that, you, that that features heavily throughout the rest of your work i think quite often um and i do use islands quite a lot uh i, I mean there obviously there's there's gullstruck island is an island and obviously fame in the light tree uh, deep light is actually set on an entire archipelago of lots of little individual islands and while that's mu that's much more of a uh, a seafaring extended community you'll have individual features to, to particular islands and so forth they'll, they'll each have their own character um, I do enjoy using islands and it's not just because it gives me the ability to trap my protagonists which I do always enjoy and in fact trap them with horrible people um, but you, you get to have an environment where the sea is always present or nearby and can be another character and can add a uh, a, a different atmosphere and drama to your scenes and, and you can nearly drown people and things like that I'm, yeah. I'm 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 not very nice to my characters i should never become a god i would be a bad god well i think you'd be i don't think you'd be a boring god though but um yeah i've been working on um i've been working on a, a setting called the haunted empire which is just for role playing but it is an archipelago and and i it came to me one of the reasons i really like islands is um the fact that you can isolate people uh, but that you can have extended communities and you can have um, uh, you can have people sailing between, uh, say, two isolated villages, but they work in a way that, say, a, um, a pastoral scene of rolling hills with lots of little villages between them isn't that doesn't work in the same way in that you, you can't you can't simply walk to the other islands. You are stuck there until you brave you, you brave the waters by swimming or you fashion a boat or somebody picks you up and then often you're at the mercy of your vehicle and and i think that's one of many reasons why i think the the setting is particularly interesting i guess it's not so far away from um from spacefaring as well except islands keep everything on a really small human scale and that's the thing i i don't really like about space opera so much and and sort of having these vast bodies which which are you know massive whole civilizations instead uh, an island's a microcosm with a, a handful of people and you can remember the names so yeah i think i think it's interesting that a lot of space operas you will get planets and 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 you know, space stations treat as if they are a village as if they are a small island in that the number of people there actually seems to be quite small you can turn up a planet looking for one person and find them yes yeah i mean if you look at some of um for example, uh, thinking about the, the Chronicles of Riddick, 
uh, with some of the the planets. There is only ever one interesting thing on a planet, and it might be a uh, it might be a, a settlement or a, or a prison or something like that. That's what that planet does. I, I kind of feel like uh, space opera can be quite reductive in that way, and so and um, islands an archipelago setting is much uh, much more real. It feels much more plausible, um, but but i liked what you just said about the um the sea as well uh, and the sea being a character and one of the things that i built into mine was was sightings of whales and the sort of um the almost the treating the whale like a deity or, or an omen i mean it's basically it's just a whale but it's like whales are big they're impressive they're wonderful to when you come across them it's a special event so they have a, a mystical significance and i think the sea does that because it's not the land and it's not the place that humans inhabit. Therefore, you're expecting strange things to come from it. So indeed, and it and it and the amount that it can conceal is is the infinite, which is less true of grass. Yes, that that is the issue. Again, you can walk on grass; that makes it quite boring. Um, yeah, who cares if you can just walk to the next village? What what's yeah? Where's the fun in that? And the sea can even make the landmass change shape and be unreliable. There are tides. The causeway that was there earlier, it's not there anymore. The, the, the beach that you're on now may not be here still in half an hour's time. All of those things, whenever I think about rocks and the sea and the treacherous environment, um, I think that's one of the most exciting fantasy environments I can think of, the one, the one that really puts you in, um, in immediate danger of being swept away. I wanted to ask though about your... Um, your characters as well though so you, you say you like characters who are slightly out of the spotlight and I, i'm sometimes asked who i write for and the best answer i can generally give is younger version of me because it's it's much easier to imagine doing that than writing for a market uh, i i mean the, the concept of of writing for masked halls makes my brain want to curl up and hide under the sofa um whereas younger me i can i you know i can i can imagine uh, younger me was quite a strange little girl, which is why the books are quite odd. But but you know that's manageable. I can identify a lot a lot of that and thinking about how we play role playing games because I think that if you're running a role playing game, you're indulging something that that your your kind of fiction, and it it makes sense that an author author does that. I think younger younger me also wanted to read books she'd never uh, never read. She wanted to encounter ideas she'd never encountered before, which is probably why my books are so weird. <laughs> Um, I do remember uh, when I was planning out A Face Like Glass, which remains, I think, probably the weirdest book I've ever read, and talking yeah. to our, our mutual friend Rhiannon and, 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 and explaining about the, the large glowing carnivorous plants and the exploding cheeses and the mind control perfumes and the, and the evil bespoke expression designers and the uh, possibly sentient geography. And I remember going to her and saying, I'm a little worried that this is a bit too derivative. And she said, no, Francis, it's it's whacked out. Yeah, I can't think of anything that is quite like some of the descriptions you have of that, of um, almost the, the alchemical nature of luxury items uh, and, and how they're supposed to function and um, how they can be so potent as to be toxic. I mean, one of the things I remember you, you did some uh, researching into cheese didn't you for for that well you did some yes. researching into cheese and which came first was it the novel or the cheese well I I, <laughs> I was planning out the novel at that stage 
So I, I knew that I wanted to research cheese so that I could describe it at, at the various different stages. And reading about how to make cheese is not the same as knowing how it smells and feels if you prod curds or whatever. Uh, so I, I went on a one day cheese making course at the Yana Trust uh, and, and and this was a lot of fun and we, and we got to um, we got to make a hard cheese and, and a soft cheese uh, and and mozzarella stretching mozzarella is, is is it's like hot play-doh and you have to stretch it it's part of it so that you know it's it doesn't count as play um, so all of that was tremendous fun and there was a very nice lady who was teaching us all and and everybody else was asking sensible questions about things like humidity levels and quantities of milk and I was asking all the questions like so what's the biggest cheese you could possibly make? And is it true that if you have gas buildup, cheese explodes? And um, what's the worst disaster you've ever had? And is it true that the Romans used to make um, cheese out of rabbit's milk? And she was very, very tolerant. How many of those did you get an affirmative answer to? <laughs> um, cheeses, um, cheeses do have a buildup of gas. They don't go bang, sadly but they can, they can blow a hole in the side of the cheese. Uh, biggest cheese, something like six foot or something like that. Uh, worst disaster, she had flies laying eggs in, in, in one of her cheeses. She didn't know about the rabbit's milk. Never, never got a definite answer on that one. How do you milk a rabbit? But you see, that was the, that was the dilemma that I wanted to give my heroine. Right. And, and, and in, in, her, um, in her case, the answer was not very well and not in such a way as to retain the rabbit. I know there's what there's strange Sicilian cheeses which are um, they're infested with some some sort of larvae and and uh, you you have to smother the cheese before you eat it and that gives off a popping sound of all the the larvae trying to exit the cheese. Yes, now that's uh, Kazumazu, and I think is it Sardinian something like that. Yeah, I think so, and and Indeed. I think it might it might be illegal or you know, illegal cheese. I think it's yes. Well, yes. I think I, yeah. I think you deliberately have to leave it to rot so that these these maggots um, end up in the cheese, which apparently helps its texture and taste. Uh, mm. these, and you have to be careful putting the bag over the whole thing because these are maggots that can leap about half a foot if they're, if they're nervous. That's incredible! Incredible leaping no, maggots. Yes, cheese that comes with special leaping maggots. Awesome. I, I've not tried that one. The search does not go that far. No, no. Um... I'm aware of it. I, I think that there are many other cheeses I plan to sample before that one. Yes. But, uh, very fine. Uh, I'm willing to try the Armenian rope cheese. And I think there's Himalayan chewing gum cheese and things like that. I, I, I'm not for that, but possibly not the leaping maggot cheese. Yeah. One, one of the things, I mean, in the face like glass, you, you do have these wonderful, uh, the, am I correct that the whole, whole point of it is the, um, the luxuries are so potent and so strange that actually you can only consume a small amount of it is that have i remember that correctly because I, I remember yes. reading some of the, some of it yes that's correct basically you have this underground city called caverna nobody's allowed to leave nobody's allowed to enter from outside and in caverna and only in caverna you have these delicacies these luxuries that are made so skillfully that as you say you can People can only stand a small amount of them, but their effects are almost like magic. So effectively, you have cheesomancy. Uh, you have cheese that will give you visions, sometimes the future, sometimes letting you know things that you already knew but had forgotten. Um, you have wine that allows you to manipulate memory, perfume that's effectively a kind of mind control. Um, 
but there are other quirks to the the, um, the city, such as the fact that children do not naturally develop expressions in the way that babies in the wider world do. So they have to be very carefully taught a certain number of faces. So basically, how many expressions you have may affect your social class because you you, you, know, you might you might have been you might be part of a sort of a rich artisan family and might end up with a you know, couple of hundred expressions. You might be part of the poor drudge underclass and have about seven. Or you might be very rich and be able to hire a face smith to make bespoke expressions for you for a particular social occasion. Um, and I think what I loved about that uh, was the the idea of, um, I don't know, magic having texture and taste and also a commercial value um, and a a certain effect on the body that could overwhelm it. I mean, the, the, there are lots of other examples, I think, of, of magic being overwhelming and all-consuming, but it's rarely associated with food and drink. It helps that I really like cheese. I, I may have been hungry while writing some of those chapters. Um, I also ended up um, researching quite a lot of underground places for that book. Uh, so buried streets in places like Edinburgh and Seattle, lots of different caves, and tunnels uh, and ended up blackwater rafting in New Zealand, just floating down uh, underground rivers while, uh, while dressed in a, in a wetsuit with a, with a hard hat, <laughs> occasionally jumping off waterfalls and, and looking at glowworms and things like that. All, awesome. all research. So and you, you've, uh, I wanted to talk about some of the other things that um, influence you then, because it, obviously you've, uh, I would certainly say that uh, your, your ideas are, are um, unique. You, you have a lot of things which in your books which I haven't encountered other another authors. Um, what other authors have um, influenced you? What are your what are your the literary sources that you draw on from you know you where where you for example the authors that you keep returning to and the ones that have particularly influenced you? Well, I suspect that a lot of the authors who really influenced me were uh, the ones that I read when I was a kid. So I mean. I loved authors like Susan Cooper and Alan Garner, who I'm, I'm sure uh, affected me in terms of my love of fantasy and my interest in folklore um, and my sense of place as somewhere in which stories are embedded, in which stories are still alive. Um, Nicholas Fisk basically got me into science fiction uh, and Leon Garfield, who wrote historical adventures and thrillers for, uh, for younger readers. I, th I think he probably is the person I have to thank for uh, my interest in historic works and writing, writing in historic settings. Um, Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett, uh, I encountered when I was in my teens, uh, have a lot of respect for them. Uh, in, in terms of writers who are role models, I also have to mention my granddad. Um, my mother's father, because uh, uh, like a lot of poor kids of his generation, he actually had to leave school at 14 because his family needed, uh, needed more money. So obviously he, he had to go and work, um, but he was very smart. So he continued working on educating himself, borrowing books from anyone he could. In fact, the, his local school teacher just kept lending him books. And my, my grandfather managed to get to the point where he was able to get into teacher training college and became a teacher and then started writing in his free time. And first he was getting lots of short stories published in a, in a local newspaper, but then got some collections published as books. And in the end had about uh, a dozen 
books published with a, with a local publisher, uh, which I think is actually pretty darn impressive for, uh, for someone who left school at 14. So I'm very proud of my granddad. He's, he's definitely one of my role models. And you said that your granddad uh, curated some ghost stories, is that right? Yes. Uh, a lot of the books my grandfather wrote were focused on Suffolk and East Anglia, which is where he grew up. So he, he wrote some um, short story collections, which were, which were all fiction, but there were also some non-fiction books where he travelled around and collected ghost stories from, well, from, from East Anglia and then put them together, wrote them up and put them together in a book. Uh, and, and Ghost of East Anglia is actually my favourite of his books. They're, they've got his rather understated style and sense of humour. So would these, these would have been actual um, local folk tales, which he's then, uh, he's then brought to life with his own style. Is yes. That, yeah, yes. Some of them, some of them were um, stories that were generally in circulation and some of them were stories that were told to him by people um, who, uh, who were still alive or by people who had talked to the people they'd happened to. Um, but, uh, so yes, he, he, he talked to some first-hand sources. As, uh, as well as collecting some of the uh, the older tales. Yeah, well, I I guess there's you automatically associate that part of the world with ghost stories and M. R. James. Uh, yes. It's Im impossible not to. Um, what is it about East Anglia that's that lends itself to that feeling? Because it, I think it's it's not just the fact that there were ghost stories there. There is something quite strange about it, the, it being flat and rural and, and in places coastal. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I think it, I think it is something to do with the flatness. I think, this, I think it's, it's very hard to pin down. Uh, I mean, I actually lived in Suffolk for the whole of my teens and was exposed to this, this apparently ghost-ridden um, environment and, and as far as I can tell I'm about as psychic as a brick. So I, yeah, I didn't see a thing, not a ghostly beam, but <laughs> there is certainly uh, an odd atmosphere to some areas. Some, sometimes sometimes some of the fields, some of the, uh, the coastal expanses, particularly the, you know, the flatter ones. I don't know, my, my geography of the area isn't great so I lump all these places together but it's thinking about uh, driving around the coast near Cromer and uh, and and the the fact that you had these winding roads over lots of low grasslands either side, and then you can see the sea off to one point, and it's always grey and windswept. And I can imagine seeing for long distances, and maybe seeing something strange off in the distance, and never being fully sure what it is. I and mean, it's that kind of feeling that you know something glimpsed out of the corner of your eye to go with the, the 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 weather and the temperament of the place i think maybe that's that's how i feel about it actually this is remarkably like one of my um favorite sections in um i'll whistle i'll come i'll come to you my lad yeah, um, yeah which which has very much that sort of open beach there's there's a point where the the, the, the academic the young academic who's the main character has just been exploring some ruins and he's he's found this 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 little whistle and he's on the way back and it's just, it's getting dark. And, and he just, actually, should, should I read it? Would that be better? 
well why why not i mean that that was the thing it is kind of hard to say how much of my feeling is linked up to mr james and it's which one comes first uh, <laughs> but but yeah go ahead bleak and solemn was a view on which he took a last look before starting homeward a faint yellow light in the west showed the links on which a few figures moving towards the clubhouse were still visible the squat martello tower the lights of Ulzi village the pale ribbon of sands intersected at intervals by black wooden groins, the dim and murmuring sea. The wind was bitter from the north, but was at his back when he set out for the globe. He quickly rattled and clashed through the shingle and gained the sand, upon which, but for the groins, which had to be got over every few yards, the going was both good and quiet. One last look behind, to measure the distance he had made, since leaving the ruined Templars church, showed him a prospect of company on his walk in the shape of a rather indistinct personage who seemed to be making great efforts to catch up with him, but made little, if any, progress. I mean that there was an appearance of running about his movements, but the, the distance between him and Parkins did not seem materially to lessen. So at least Parkins thought, and decided that he, he almost certainly did not know him, and that it would be absurd to wait until he came up. For all that, company, he began to think, would really be very welcome on that lonely shore, if only you could choose your companion. In his unenlightened days, he had read of meetings in such places, which even now could hardly bear thinking of. Yeah, that's so good. I think I've got the BBC adaptation of the whistle when I come to you. Um, ah, no, it's a warning to the curious is the one I do, I've got. But uh, whistle when I come to you was was um, adapted by the same uh, the same team. So it was around say the when I think of, you get some of the best BBC um, you know speculative fiction shows like Doctor Who and uh, and then you get these films as well it's it, it's it's all around the same sort of atmosphere and uh, very much i don't know grounded and rural and and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's that's one of the things i like this the passage i've just read is the first actual hint of the supernatural in the story oh it gets much worse um but it's the transition of mood up to that point we've been following this rather commonsensical little academic around and everything's been described in prosaic and mundane terms. And then just as he's coming back, the very place that we've had described these terms shifts its atmosphere. And we get the sense of the strangeness and the unease and a presence that is not entirely benign. I mean, in terms of, in terms of the stories that, that my grandfather noted down, actually one of the ones that I like most is not one of the terribly picturesque ones with an awfully, uh, an awfully well-dressed gray lady haunting some Gothic tower or anything. But again, it's a lot more prosaic. Uh, it's, it's one that's tied into people leaving, living ordinary, in some cases, quite difficult lives. And it's got that slightly concrete edge to it. Um, should I tell that? I think that would be brilliant. Well, it's a story that a man called Jim Fairfield refused to tell anyone except his mother for a very long time 
but eventually a, a, a young barmaid managed to, to get the story out of him. It was something that happened when he was about 18 or 19. Uh, he'd, he'd been living in a little village and from time to time he and other young fellows his own age would head off to Lowestoft and work for a bit on the trawlers because he could, he could make some money that way. He'd been doing that for a couple of months and was heading back home. And getting home was, was tricky, getting a lift was a bit difficult, but there was a mail cart you could catch if you didn't mind traveling on it all night and turning up just before dawn. So he, um, he turns up about dawn and is wandering through the village with his kit bag and with a string of herrings that he's brought back for his mum. And he sees his friend George. And George is just standing outside the cottage. And George is a, George is a bit of a wide boy. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people around who are a little bit into their smuggling, but um, George very much so, more, more so than most. And so Jim greets him and says, you know, what, what are you doing up at this time? Um, have you been up all night? What have you been up to? And George doesn't answer. He just stands there perfectly still. So Jim goes over and he's a little bit annoyed by this because they haven't seen each other for months. And so he calls out to him again and George doesn't answer. And Jim basically says, look, if you're not, if you're going to keep ignoring me, you're asking to be hit in the head with fish. Uh, and George doesn't respond. So Jim swings his arm and the string of herrings go right through George and hit the wall. And George vanishes. And a very shaky Jim does exactly what uh, a bold young fellow in his, in, in his position should do, which is run home and tell his mum. Uh, and his mum knows something he doesn't know, which is that George died of a fever about a month before. But she, she doesn't believe this nonsense until she goes herself to George's cottage and sees the fish scales on the wall. And Jim himself, for the rest of his life, will never walk past that cottage. Anytime he has to walk that way, he will find a different route and never walks past that cottage again. Now, what I like about this story is all the little concrete details, things, things like the mail cart from Lowestoft and, and the, the string of herring and the fish scales on the wall and the skeptical mum. You get the feeling something happened. That young man saw something and tried to hit it with fish. And that's such a fantastic story. And the, the other thing is I could imagine, I mean, it's, I could really visualise the kind of community in which that becomes a, a story that, and, and it's just a thing that happened that not many people mention, but it then leads to, as you say, a lot of different details, like um, the young man refusing to ever walk that way again. Um, and, uh, and, you know, signs of the ghost passing or signs of people interacting with the ghost. It does it does really bring home to me the idea of a small community where you have everyone knows each other and you have a um a uh, you know that they've got a strong sense of of their local identity and and where they are and um and then the the ghost is going to become part of the fabric of that yeah absolutely it is, it is it's not just a story about the dead it's a story about the living you absolutely get a sense of that village yeah, I mean, going back to the thing about the, the the sort of islands and closed communities and things, that has always been the thing I found extremely compelling. And being able to embellish it with the sort of uh, 
low-level local supernatural stuff, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's not that sort of um, weirdly flashy. It's not. It's not like it's um, particularly tragic or or the massive uh, displays of the supernatural, but it does obviously deeply affect people. Even though the, the the ghost is almost incidental, the fact is that that encounter is going to stay with that person for the rest of their life. Indeed. Can I ask you about role playing games, by the way? Yes, yes, you can. Yeah, because I I know you're a you're a big role player. So you talked about uh, imagining writing stories for a younger you. How do you feel about um, about role playing? Do you role play the same kinds of characters or do you do the opposite, play wildly different characters? What do you like to do as far as role-playing goes? I really like variety. Uh, given that one of the points of role-playing is an exercise in empathy, the chance to walk in the this shoes or claws or whatever of someone or something very different from oneself, why wouldn't one? Why wouldn't one try out as many different heads as possible? So, yes, I've, I've, I've played... I've played um, outright villains. I've played uh, much more benign characters. I've played ingenues. I've played an anthropomorphic puffin um, living in humanity's subconscious. Uh, I've, I've played scientists, despite that my own scientific knowledge is limited. Um, <laughs> I've no. I, I mean, basically, the the more variety, the better. So, what have you re- recently been playing? If I might ask. Um, well, recently, uh, a lot of my role playing, funnily enough, has been online. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I I actually had my first in-person role-playing just the weekend before last. Uh, well, my first since the start of the pandemic. It was actually a LARP, uh, a space opera LARP, where I was actually playing a psychologist. And, and after so much Zoom role-playing, there, were, there was a certain pure joy to being able to run around a piece of terrain, pointing a, uh, a thinly disguised water pistol and shouting zap. <laughs> yes, I've, I've ended up playing a, a lot of role-playing games over Zoom, uh, many of them basically tabletop campaigns that have moved online, uh, but also some games which have been specifically designed to cope with the fact that we were role-playing digitally. Um, some, some people have been quite inventive about that. Uh, I, I've got one friend who, who created a one-off that was where the premise was that we were uh, uh, basically a, a, a Scooby gang of uh, individuals who were, who were dedicated to preserving reality and who had failed. So that reality had been rent into very small fragments. And we were now communicating with each other desperately for our individual fragments, trying to work out what had gone wrong and how we could make it better. Um, but made, made good use of the fact that we were all in different places. Uh, I've, I've played in a couple where everybody was on a different spaceship communicating with each other through screens, which of course works very nicely. I, and I've been very cheered and inspired by how, um, how creative people um, have been about making the, the virtual nature of our role playing into a feature rather than a flaw. Yeah, th- there is a game called View Screen, which I don't know if you're aware of that. And that was written for exactly the same reason. It was the idea, I think you're on a single ship uh, which is being stalked by a xenomorph, and, and you're in one. You're, you're in different locations on the ship, like engineering on the bridge, and uh, doing interacting exactly that way. But this this is much more. Um, that is much more of a LARP than a. It's and even though it's virtual, even though it's uh, digital, it's a LARP rather than more of a tabletop role playing game, isn't it? 
uh, because you're actually imagining that you are in the space where you are in front of your screen. Is that, um, do you play more, which, which do you play more of? Do you go for more of the LARPs or tabletop games? Tabletop sessions are more frequent. Uh, nowadays, I, I, don't, I don't have a local LARP group. So when I, when I go to a LARP, it tends to be a weekend long LARP, which is, as you might expect, a, a bit less frequent. Yeah, you, did you, you went to, you've been to Maelstrom a number of times, haven't you? Yes, I went to yeah. Maelstrom for about six years. That did take over my life a bit. It was very, very fun. Well, it's, it's to be expected to, because that, that, that is, again, that's like a, a weekend format type thing, like the gathering where you actually, you all rock up and you play in character for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what sort of, um, what sort of genres of games then are you going for? Do you, how much is the overlap in, in genre of game uh, to your your genre of writing? Then is uh, the same thing, or again, do you do you play much broader, uh, much broader range of genres? I think I think I've played a fairly broad range of genres. Uh, I mean, if if something is being run by a GM I trust, then even if it's a setting that doesn't immediately call to me, I might well give it a go. Mm. Uh, I've I have tended to uh, enjoy fantasy rather than uh, rather than science fiction and historical rather than uh, than futuristic but I'm open-minded and I've played I've played a number of usually one-offs that are modern day and not supernatural at all there's there some there's some very good character-driven games written by friends of mine I'm, I'm sometimes sometimes they let me play test them which is a lot of fun yes I'm, I'm, fairly, I'm fairly open-minded as I say um, Role-playing for me is all about being people I'm not, uh, living in times I haven't, uh, and going places I can't. So variety is good. Do you think there's a lot of overlap between role-playing and, and writing fiction for you? In the sort of... I think it certainly helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think as a role-player, there are certain things that you get used to, which is that, all right, as far as you're concerned, your character may be the hero of the story, but uh, everyone else around them will have characters who are just as much... Uh, just as just as well rounded out, who have backgrounds that are just as detailed, and whose incentives or intentions are just as driving for them. And I think that does train the way one thinks about one's secondary characters. Similarly, I think it affects the way I think about setting, um, in that I I know a lot of games masters who have developed settings and worlds in really impressive detail have really thought it through in, in, to, to a great extent because they know that the moment they release players in it, we will run around like crazy things, opening random doors, blowing things up and looking under rocks um, and running off the, uh, the, the rails of whatever they thought their plot was. So they'd better have something we can run onto. And even though my, my fictional characters mostly don't do that to quite the same extent, though some of them have a bit more autonomy than I should wish, um, I still like to know how my world works. Even if there are elements of it that the, um, the reader is never going to see, for my satisfaction, I need to know how it all holds together. I guess you need some consistency there in order to give you the confidence that if, if you suddenly chose to move your plot in a particular direction that you hadn't previously planned, yeah. You could you could do that with ease, focus on the character because you've already got a good sense of the world. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and also, when you do start 
asking yourself these questions about your setting and finding the answers and thinking through repercussions, quite often it generates more plot and more characters. You get more insight into the way things work and the way people are probably having to live and the sort of people who might um, might thrive or perish in, in, in this environment. Uh, that's very similar to the way that I would approach uh, GMing anyway. And I, I imagine a lot of people who run a lot of games, particularly with their own settings, they you need to assimilate your setting and to make it consistent in your own head because as you say no pl no plot is going to survive first contact with the players and uh, you know and they will do all kinds of things and uh, and you having a consistent idea about the about the sandbox really helps you then just be reactive to whatever what else they do and even if you're asking yourself the you know boring practical questions the answers don't have to be boring <laughs> sometimes sometimes that's where the crazy can creep in I, when I was when I was coming up with a face like glass, um, I was asking myself questions like, um, "Okay, well, this is an underground city. Where, where, where do these people get their light and air?" Well, the, I, I, the answer I ended up coming up with for that was enormous glowing carnivorous plants, and something that where, where do they get their water? Uh, I ended up inventing a pulley pulley system that brings up water uh, from underground rivers, uh, which my heroine later ends up riding because it's the only way to get between two levels. And so the, these things potentially generate plot and further ideas and colour. And actually that sometimes that works better than coming up with the colour first and then trying to justify it. But it sounds, uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds very much like um, all, a lot of your world building in that case is at the service of your plot, uh, of your narrative, in which case it's not like it's uh, you're inventing something that's, I don't want to say dead weight. It's not dead weight, but it's like sort of it, it's off screen. It's not like you're inventing a lot of stuff off screen. A lot of the things that you've just talked about there are useful world building that happens at the point that you encounter it as as the reader, uh, which I, I think makes the most sense. When that that's pretty much how um, uh, that's the sense I get about M. John Harrison, you know, the author of Vericonium. It doesn't. It's a great enemy of world building. So the world is entirely subjective and it is what is written on the page at any moment. Uh, and that also makes sense to me. I guess, I guess this, that goes in the face of what I've just said about uh, having a consistent world to, 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 as a baseline. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's part of the same thing. Yeah, there are definitely different approaches. I, I, I am definitely one of life's planners. So I actually really like to know my setting quite early on. This is partly because it generates plot ideas and, and ideas for, for scenes later in the book, but also because it helps me understand my characters properly. Um, I don't feel that I really have got inside my characters' heads until I fully understand the lives they've had. And I can only do that if I understand the setting properly. So Francis, we've already talked about a bit about um, Halloween and ghost stories. Um, have you got any other recommendations for authors of ghost stories? Well, as I previously mentioned, I do like M.R. James. Uh, I, I am particularly fond of um, Lost Hearts uh, and A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. But there are a number that made, again, made an impression on me when I was quite young. There's a book by Diana Wynne Jones called The Time of the Ghost. And that's actually written from the point of view of a character who certainly appears to be a ghost and who has very little memory, but is trying to interact with the world and remember who they are. 
So that takes the ghost story from a rather interesting angle. Um, another, another children's book is The Shadow Cage and Other Supernatural Tales um, by Philippa Pierce. The, the main story, The Shadow Cage, is a nicely eerie tale involving a haunted bottle where a lot more is ultimately suggested than fully explained. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a well-written, creepy little story. Uh, but the others, the other stories in the collection are well worth a look. There are several stories where places and things are haunted, not so much by an individual dead person as by an incident or a memory. It's as if they've become psychically charged by trauma or unhappiness in some way. And there's, there's a, they're all quite character driven. So they're, they're, they're well worth looking at as a collection. And I also have a soft spot for uh, an English ghost story by Kim Newman, in that that's, that's in a way, it's a subversion of the, the, old, uh, the old haunted house story, in that you know, there is a house. It is a big dramatic house and a family move into it. And at first, the house is actually quite mellow. It's actually got quite a sort of friendly vibe. And that's because the house, as it turns out, is basically psychic blotting paper. And, and the last people who lived there were quite mellow. Unfortunately, this family have some hang-ups. Right. And after a little while, the house starts to change. So thinking about the essence of a sort of effective ghost stories, I know we talked a lot about the sort of small community East Anglia stuff, but there's a, a variety of things you just talked about there. What makes them particularly good ghost stories in each one? I think there are lots of different sorts of good ghost stories. Um, I do have a bias in favour of the story that's rooted in the real and the story that's that uses understatement and that shift into the uncanny and the wrong without necessarily throwing intestines at you. Um, basically, at, at the point where the first skeleton appears, I'm, I'm usually a little bored. So again, it's this, it's this notion of the, the understated and the sort of the, the low level supernatural that is felt rather than, than witnessed. Is that yes, fair? Indeed. Yeah. Or where it's witnessed is witnessed in uh, an understated and ambiguous way. And that, that really seems to um, seems to sum up a lot of a lot of what the earlier fiction you talked about as well. Like we said, the the actual supernatural event is rarely overt, but it is often felt by the people who witness it. So I guess that's that's where I would be. Speaking of ghosts, though, I remember us playing Wraith all the, you know, about 30 years back, and you played everybody's shadow walking around and whispering every everyone near, because you were co-GMing, right? Yes, um, yes. Uh, Martin and I decided to run a Wraith game, and we decided not to tell the players that it was a Wraith game. We, we told them it was a World of Darkness setting. We also didn't tell them that I was a GM. Um, so as far as as far as the uh, the players were concerned, they were they were uh, playing ordinary humans in this in this setting using this particular system, um, and this gave us a little while to to study their characters and psychoanalyze them before my NPC murdered them all horribly. <laughs> At which yes. point we admitted the fact that it was actually a wraith game. Yes, I, I think I think most of them have sort of forgiven us. Oh, I th I thought it was spectacular. Um, but one of the things that stri struck me about that is that everything about the world of darkness is bang, flash, massive conspiracies, huge monsters uh, and weird things happening. Um, 
I think one of the things I like about Wraith, um, you know, personally, is that uh, it's so far away from the rest of the world's darkness stuff. You can you can compartmentalize it a lot better. I did actually think that even sort of, uh, you know, we ended up in the underworld with the, with the Stygian iron and, and uh, the, the centurions and all of that. Um, that was not necessary. And the thing that made it really exciting was being ghosts and just being uh, having our shadow, in which case, you know, a, a shadow being locked by you sort of whispering in our ears and, and revealing our own insecurities and playing off that. I think, um, I think that would be a, an, another example of less being more that, that, that was all we would really need for a good ghost story. Um, and, you know, to be confronted with our, um, well, everyone's own moral failings. I think that's pretty much what you were doing. That's that's why we were going to hell, basically. Well, not 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 hell, the underworld, but you know what I mean. Yes, I agree. Actually, yes, I think I think the the sections where the um, where the race were interacting with the mortal world as or or failing to interact with it was by far the more by, by far the most involving part of the of, of the game and the setup. I do go back to race sometimes, and, and I think it's sort of related to uh, what you said about places being haunted by an event or a sensation rather than an individual um and i i've always liked wraith's approach to passions and fetters that that sort of define the ghost and basically the areas that they're haunting haunted sorry the areas that they are haunting and the the feelings that they have um those are far more important to me than the uh you know the super the supernatural hierarchy the overarching plot and the, the 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 whole themes of good versus evil so much more important to think about those things at the human scale and i'm wondering if that if that is what makes a good ghost story because once you forget about the humanity of it it stops really being a, a ghost story uh once you forget once you stop once you fail to make it personal and um and uh you know on a human scale it it doesn't really seem like a ghost story to me um indeed i i agree i think i think the reasons one of the reasons that ghosts have such a powerful hold on on imaginations is because they are like us and not like us um they are they are people but we can't tell how much they've changed we can't tell how much they can harm us now they don't behave quite like us I think to be fair, I mean, remember the um, the very first vampire games before um, we got it became sort of a world spanning conspiracy when it was just a few people who had the misfortune to become undead and have to um, adapt to a completely new kind of life. I got the same kind of feeling then, sort of very early on. It was all about your your personal feelings about being dropped from your comfortable life as as a living person into unlife and i think we really quickly lost sight of that in, in a lot of the way those games went and it became just found superheroes yes absolutely it did have it did have a slight feel of nocturnal superheroes do politics and yeah. somehow the actual vampirism got a little bit lost when i explained my feelings about that my favorite vampire fiction uh, to al holsby i think it was and he paraphrased it really well he said also, oh, you're saying it's you prefer vampire fiction that's all about outsiders, you know, to to human society rather than vampires who are insiders to vampire society. And I thought that yeah, yeah, I kind of do really. I, I think yes. that's how I would I would go with that. Yes, yes, I go with that too. 
So Francis, we've been chatting for um, for a little while now. Um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to talk about your your next project and what you're working on and excited by. Well, I'm, I'm currently working on another YA novel. And once again, it's an entirely different world from the others uh, because I never like writing the same thing twice if I can help it. And this one is a story of curses and ancient pacts and marshwoods with unreliable geography and rather sinister carnivorous horses amongst other things that sounds awesome and and strangely familiar as well as well despite being different i guess unreliable geographies is that's uh, unreliable geography is one of my recurrent motifs unreliable geography is um i feel very strongly about that i can't stand uh game and static game maps i like sort of maps that are drawn extremely loosely so they've got a lot of space for people to get lost in well I, I i get lost incredibly easily so as far as i'm concerned all geography is unreliable and flexible and moves if you don't pin it down with a map um so i think this bleeds through into my fantasy worlds a bit yeah it, it, it does move and everyone knows that absolutely so what are you doing for halloween well i'm likely to be here and this time i'd like to be able to receive trick-or-treaters which for obvious reasons, I couldn't really do last year. Yeah. Um, so that'll that'll be nice. Uh, we've got some very enthusiastic trick or treaters in in our area, and certainly the year before last, I had about ten different groups run um, turning up, and had to do an emergency run to get more sweets. Francis, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, you can like, share, subscribe, give us a five-star review on iTunes, and I've got a Patreon as well. Anyway, until next time, bye.